welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Over the next two weeks, I am officiating two weddings, and in both cases, I have known one of the parties for a long time. In one case, I've known the bride for a long time, or the bride-to-be. In the other case, I've known the husband-to-be for a long time. So I have history with them. And this connection always changes the way I feel about the ceremony and how I approach the time I spend with the couple in the months before the seminary, or seminary, cemetery, I should have, no. Um, (laughs) Before the ceremony, a little Freudian thing there. And it affects how I think about their marriage and their life together after uh, the ceremony. When I know the bride or I know the groom, The stakes always feel higher to me. My sense of responsibility intensifies. My desire to help the couple get beneath the surface increases. Or to put a word to it, I have a greater urgency when I know the couple who's about to get married. Because, as you probably know, the chaos and confusion and hurt and uncertainty around marriage is at an all-time high, as is pessimism about the whole idea of marriage, whether it really matters or is worth the hassle. Marriage over the last number of years and decades has been downgraded and is on the decline, literally on the decline. Less people are even getting married. Seems to me as well, marriage has lost its sacredness. And perhaps it's lost its sacredness because we have held it to a standard of sacred that is impossible to achieve by broken people living in a broken world. In any case, if marriage is a stock, its price has been falling for some time. Today, as we mentioned already, we continue our series that we're calling Tremors, where in this series we're considering various arenas in our culture where the ground feels like it is shaking, And there is growing tension and growing division. And there may even be a widening gap between the Christian perspective of that issue on one hand and the culture's perspective of that issue on the other hand. Or as we are saying it in this series, the and is becoming an or or a versus or an against. Last week it was character and leadership. And today, this week, it is marriage and relationship. And I feel this morning similar to how I feel about these upcoming weddings of people I know. This topic feels crucial to me for our church. When I got thinking about it, I quickly realized we haven't talked about marriage much for the past several years. And I'm not sure why. I'm quite sure that's not been a good idea. But I feel a sense of urgency today. And obviously, there is far more acreage to explore in the subject of marriage than we have time. There are a multitude of important issues. This topic of marriage and relationship could launch us out into things like human sexuality, gender identity, same-sex marriage, the agony of divorce, forgiveness, reconciliation, And these are the easy issues we could deal with under the heading of this topic. 
if we're to be thoughtful Christians, it seems to me we must sit with all these issues I just mentioned and process them with others who desire God's perspective on these issues. And in that process, discern together whether the culture's perspective aligns with the teaching of Jesus and the Bible. And as you can imagine in one single message, we can't deal with all that here today. And some of you throughout this time I'm talking will probably want me to drive home certain positions on one or more of these issues and make declarative statements perhaps about where I or where Oak Hills stands on one or more of these issues. So here's the spoiler alert. You will probably be disappointed. Our purpose today is to consider the value the Bible puts on marriage and how we cultivate a healthy relationship in the gritty details of imperfect married life. We could spend weeks on the subject of marriage and relationships and all of the issues I mentioned a moment ago, and maybe we should, but we've only got a few minutes today, so a lot is going to be left unsaid. Today I want to offer a few observations about marriage and relationships, and these observations are born, hopefully, out of the Bible's teaching, for sure out of my experience in my own marriage, and out of the countless stories and challenges couples have invited me into over the years. And it's important to me that you know that I know marriage is a tough topic. In a group like this, when we open up this can of worms, this is a difficult subject. There's a lot of pain around this subject. There are issues related to divorce, which has a lot of pain around this subject. There's also the reality that there are a rising number of single people in our culture, in our world, and in our church. So for some uh, who are single, this could seem irrelevant. The one thing I do not want to do today, whether it's the tone of my voice, the forcefulness with which I say these things, one thing I do not want to do is get anywhere near shaming anyone or piling on to what might already be a heap of pain. I believe marriage is sacred. But that which God designs and calls sacred always gets messy when people get their hands on it. So marriage is sacred with stains. Let's put it that way. But there is always hope for a different and better future because God is present and God is powerful, so we keep pressing on. So let's jump in. Healthy relationships are rooted in an other-centered, self-sacrificing ethic. This is the first observation. The Christian perspective says a healthy and mutually satisfying relationship, whether it's a marriage, friendship, parent-to-child, child-to-parent, whatever, is rooted in other-centeredness, self-sacrifice, you first, not me first. In the language of the Bible, we find our lives by losing them. We lay down our lives for the sake of our friends. We give ourselves up for the sake of the other. My needs and wants and desires then are not the driving or governing force 
of my relationships. The Christian perspective then audaciously claims that a life oriented around others for their good and for their benefit is actually better than a life oriented around me for my good and for my benefit. And I don't have to tell you, but this biblical perspective cuts sharply against the grain of a me-first culture. Meism is the wide-arcing meta-narrative from which some people these days approach everything in life. It's approached from this meta-narrative of me. Church gets approached this way. Relationships, work, retirement, sex, love, marriage. Many today are driven and governed by what they want, what they desire, what they think they need to fulfill themselves. And meism deforms our lives and relationships and marriages. My meism has hurt Julie many, many times. And it's deformed our marriage many, many times. Healthy relationships are rooted in an other-centered, self-sacrificing ethic. And for those who are followers of Jesus, he is our template for this way of relating. He is our example. He gave himself for our sake. He loved us sacrificially even when we didn't care or respond well to it. So he is our example of how we are to be in our relationships. When I reflect on where I tend to drift in my marriage or where I see or hear the drift in others, this is it right here. I always drift toward me and to what I want and to what I need and to my desires and to what I think will fulfill me. I've got 32 years of marriage data to pro prove that I always drift toward self-satisfying instead of self-sacrificing. It's the difference between what Tim Keller calls a consumer relationship like I have with Rayleigh's. As long as they have the goods I want, offered at a price I'm willing to pay, are sufficiently staffed so when I'm looking for saffron, they can tell me what aisle it's in, and open enough checkout lanes so I don't age while I wait, then I'll continue to grocery shop there. It's a consumer relationship. My needs are the priority. You meet them, I'm in. The difference between that and a covenant relationship is what Keller drives at. Like I have, for example, with my children. No matter what they do, whether I agree or not, like it or not, support it or not, I will always love them and be irrevocably committed to them for their good, for their benefit, for their growth. Consumer relationships are about me and they say as long as. Covenant relationships are about you and say no matter what. Tim Keller writes and puts it this way. You can see this on the screens. In sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. Contemporary Western societies make the individual's happiness 
the ultimate value. And so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. So secondly, why marriage? Just an observation about the prevalence of this question. Why marriage? It's a question more and more are asking. We already love each other, so why do we need a piece of paper to formalize it? We have a great relationship. Why ruin it? By getting married. In the language of our series, this is where marriage and relationship becomes marriage or relationship. And lurking just below the surface of this perspective is the belief that there's nothing all that unique or sacred about marriage. Whatever marriage supposedly offers, the thinking goes, we can have without the hassle of getting married. And with so many marriages failing or floundering, why risk it? With so many lifeless Christian marriages... Why bother? And from my chair, I completely understand. Marriage is messy. Marriage is hard. So, today or any time, I have zero interest in flowery visions of an idyllic marriage because there is no such thing. The beauty is in the mess, but it takes a lot of work for both spouses to find it. I've had many discussions with young people contemplating their first marriage, older people contemplating another marriage, and others contemplating whether to stay in the marriage they're currently in. And their hesitation has been forged in the furnace of pain. And marriage is painful. So, why bother? Why marriage? Certainly not to fill a void or find fulfillment. Certainly not because marriage is a status symbol or some kind of rite of passage. Certainly not because the married are somehow superior or more advanced than those who are single. Certainly not because the married are more fulfilled than those who are single. So why marriage? Well, the Christian response begins at the very beginning of the Bible in the passage we read. I'll reread 22 to 24. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Notice the progression. First is Adam. Then God created Eve from Adam. So now there are two, man and woman. Then God created marriage so they could reunite and once more be one. This mysterious but wonderful picture of oneness, relationship, intimacy, and togetherness bursts off the Bible's early pages as being at the heart of marriage. So why marriage? Well, we can say because God created it And he had a purpose for creating it. Marriage is not just 
some random idea God had one day while his feet were up on the porch. And he said, I've got an idea. I'll take two entirely different creatures and smash them together and then sit back with popcorn and watch the fireworks. He had a reason right from the beginning. From the beginning, his intent was for men and women to come together in this thing called marriage and reestablish oneness, togetherness, intimacy with each, with each other. They started as one, then they became two, and then the two became one flesh again in marriage. I like that. It intrigues me. It stirs me. But is there more? And indeed there is. See, this oneness points to something even more incredible and beautiful. Beautiful. Throughout the Bible, God is depicted as the husband and his people as his bride. And God makes a covenant with his people. A covenant he will never break. A no matter what relationship, even though his people break the covenant all the time. This marriage metaphor runs throughout the pages of the Bible. God and his people betrothed. Heaven and earth coming together, reunited, oneness. The bride of Christ, as the New Testament calls the church, waiting for the bridegroom, as Jesus is called. The marriage supper of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation calls the final episode of redemption history. On the first few pages of the Bible, God establishes marriage. Throughout the Bible, the metaphor of marriage runs of God and his people being married. And on the last few pages of the Bible, God and his bride finally come together beautifully and perfectly to forever live in these words again, oneness and togetherness. So in the Bible, marriage is a picture or a sign of God's relationship with his people. So he created marriage to depict this, to point to this, to reflect this, or say it this way, marriage illustrates God's covenant love and commitment to his people. So marriage is a covenant between two people who are wildly different in every way, as different as heaven and earth, as different as man and woman, and they come together, and with God's help and guidance and power, they move toward oneness, intimacy, togetherness, relationship, unshakably committed to each other. Marriage is a sign that points to God's desire for all of humanity to be in relationship with him. So marriage is missional. Heaven and earth reunited. Those that are very different, God and human beings, reunited. The divine and the human in intimate union pointed to by man and woman in intimate union. So it's not just a piece of paper. 
It's a piece of paper that formalizes a God-ordained covenant between a man and a woman where they pledge to learn how to love and they pledge to do the hard work of cultivating oneness. It's a grand idea. Full of mystery and all kinds of head-scratching, what are you talking about? I don't pretend to fully understand it. I barely understand a sliver of it. So let me use the words of N.T. Wright, a very smart guy who understands it much better than I do. He wrote, That is why I believe the biblical picture of man and woman together in marriage is not something about which we can say, Oh, well, they had some funny ideas back then. We know better now. The biblical view of marriage is part of the larger whole of, crea- of new creation, and it symbolizes and points to that divine plan. Every time I, as a priest, celebrate the marriage of a couple, I remind myself, and I frequently remind the couple that what we are doing is setting up a signpost we live in a world of many storms and many winds those signposts can easily get battered and broken but they are pointing somewhere and the reality to which they are pointing is the fulfillment of god's good purposes for creation marriage is a sign of all things in heaven and on earth coming together in christ That's why it's a tough calling. But that is why also it is central and non-negotiable. That, for me, is what it's all about. So there you go. Our marriages are to be a sign pointing to the new creation God is slowly making. Our marriages are pointing to the fulfillment of God's good purposes for all of creation. And a marriage established and based on these terms with all the obvious imperfections and struggles is different than just another relationship. One more word on why marriage, and this is implied certainly by what I've just said. In the words of Tim Keller, the purpose of marriage is deep character change through deep friendship. I love that statement. The purpose of marriage is deep character change through deep friendship. Now would be a good time to hold the hand or put your arm around your spouse if you're here because they are helping you change in ways you desperately need to change. They're not changing you. They're helping you realize God wants to change you. See, the security of being in an unbreakable covenant fosters the space and the freedom to sharpen one another and gradually grow into becoming the people God intended us to be. I don't know anyone who is even mildly self-reflective who doesn't encounter shame every now and then. Marriage is a relationship where that suffocating shame can slowly be changed through the deep and abiding friendship of our spouse. See, marriage is a relationship where the particulars of my meism have a chance to be sharpened and refined. Anger, impatience, lust, fear, insecurity, 
pain from the past. Iron sharpens iron in the gritty world of marriage if we cooperate. No one, no one has been more influential than Julie in loosening the grip of shame on my soul. And if you don't know me, you may not know, nothing has gripped me tighter from the day I was born to this present day than shame. And no one has been more influential in loosening its grip on me than Julie. She's confronted me. She's challenged me. She's listened to me. She's caught my tears. She's consoled me. She's pushed back against me. She's seen me in all my inglorious nakedness. And yet, still, she stays. And she loves. And this whole enterprise has formed my inner world to be a little bit less me-centered and a little bit more God and other-centered. Third observation, the elephant in the house. This all sounds great. But you know, and I know, for some, there's an elephant in the house. See, there are those who are in relationships who don't see the point of marriage. Why marriage? So they have relationship without marriage. But over on the other side of this, sadly, there are those who are married who don't have much of a relationship with their spouse. So they have the piece of paper, but they don't have much of a connection. They live under the same roof, but roof, but they aren't really together. And this is the elephant in the house. This is the messy reality in some marriages. This is the secret story. This is the hidden pain. The marriage may be a few years old or a few decades old, but it lacks relationship. It lacks the various thing it was created to bring. Oneness. In these relationships, the two remain two. They don't inch toward becoming one. There's a lack of connection, a lack of bond, a lack of togetherness. To use the verbiage of our series, it is a marriage without relationship. Two people living under the same roof who touch base occasionally on life and family logistics, but connection is minimal. Emotional intimacy is scarce. Let me say that again. Emotional intimacy is scarce. They live with each other, but they are far from each other. They may not argue much or yell much. Outwardly, the relationship may be defined by a dreadful four-letter word. Fine. But there's a distance between them. And the home is cold. I'm not talking about the inevitable ups and downs in every marriage. There are days and even seasons where every marriage flatlines or dips. That's the reality of two broken and sinful people being married. That's not the elephant in the house. I'm talking about a marriage that has plenty of mechanics and logistics and technical specifications, but it lacks soul. It lacks heart. 
It lacks connection and intimacy. We're talking about roommates, co-owners of a business, or in the worst situations, divorced without the piece of paper. And it's painful. It's painful. For many people, it's hidden. It's down there deep. These aches, these longings. And I want you to hear this. Julie and I have been in that space before. And it's hard. And it's messy. And it's painful. And the question that is getting fainter and fainter and the font of the question is getting smaller and smaller, is there hope? Or is this as good, as good as it will ever be? So last observation is to talk about a step toward hope. I remember an experience with Julie years ago where she told me she wanted to talk to me about something she was feeling about our relationship. About that fast, I knew I was going to get a bad grade. And I'm sure I deserved it. But right away, right when she brought it up, my initial default mode was defensive. And my defensiveness went sky high. I was ready. I was guarded. Uh, like what? Kind of a thing. But something happened that changed everything. Now, I'm sure it didn't change everything. And I'm sure it wasn't the first time. Uh, blah, 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 blah. But something about this just like tattooed in my brain. And I've never forgotten it. So she started after I hesitantly said, what? She started off by saying something like this. Hey, I realize at times I can be overly sensitive about such and such. And I think you know this, Mike. It's because of my story. So I'm saying this, what I'm about to say, I'm saying it knowing some of this is about me herself and about my ongoing journey with shame and with healing. So I want you to understand that first. I know this isn't all about you. This is about me and my story and the shame I sometimes feel. I go, okay, I get it. And then she goes, but Mike, you know, when you say, I don't remember what it was, but when you say this or when you do this, here's what that does to me. I told her then, I've told many people since then, and I'll tell you now. She could have told me I'm the worst guy on planet Earth, and it would have felt like a compliment to me. Why? Because she opened up her heart first and said, can you come in here? Because I need you to look around in here where I live and see and feel some things that I see and feel. And I think that will help you understand and contextualize what I'm about to tell you. And that's exactly what happened. She opened her heart to me and I saw her in a new light. She invited me into her inner world so I can see and feel what she saw and felt. And then she told me how I had done or said something that hurt her. My defenses were gone. I heard angels singing. Because I understood it. Because she first invited me in. So what is that? To me, it was deep emotional intimacy through vulnerability. The two of us inched toward oneness that day. 
so many years ago. And I think something like this can be a step toward hope in a marriage where connection has been lost or is fading. But I've come to believe this kind of emotional vulnerability and emotional intimacy, this kind of letting our spouse into our inner world is one of the hardest things a human being will ever do. And you know what's a lot easier? This is a lot easier. You know what? Whether it's an attitude or something expressed. You know what? If you were different, we would be different. If you weren't X, Y, Z, then we wouldn't have any issues or they'd be a lot less. See, pointing the finger that way is always easier than pointing the finger this way. Emotional intimacy through vulnerability. I think this is really hard for some of us. Letting our spouse in. Shame. That dreadful fear that first plagued Adam and Eve has plagued every person and couple since. There's a reason that before sin, the Bible says Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. And right after sin, Adam and Eve scurry off to the bushes to cut branches to cover themselves. That's not just a cute little act in the play. Shame keeps us from inviting our spouse into our inner world. This is hard. This emotional vulnerability is scary. It's unfamiliar. And you might be thinking, what's the point? The point is the the two just inching toward becoming one, which is back to God's intent for marriage. So let me try it this way. When I think of a marriage where there's a sustained trend toward life's logistics and away from intimacy and oneness, maybe something like this. Hey, I've been thinking about us. And I know that I'm a major part of the reason, but I feel a deepening disconnection. And I don't want that. Can we spend some time with that? It's complicated. There'll be reactions. It's a mixed bag. It's never easy. All the old stuff from the past shows up right now in the present. It's really tough. But there is incredible beauty in these marriages, but it needs to be excavated out of the pain and struggle. And it takes work kind of like God's relationship with us. So I want to just ask us to sit with this for a moment and sort of let God's spirit do what he will and nudge where he will. So band, you guys can come up at this time. I want to invite you, if you are so inclined to just close your eyes, this isn't going to be a, you know, Go give your spouse a hug and pretend all the stuff that happened in the last 12 years is now gone. It's not that. You may not be thinking of your marriage, but you may be thinking of a marriage somewhere. I just want us to sit in this for a moment. Obviously, we did some excavating today, and that's hard. And it's good to just sit for a few minutes in the gentleness and graciousness of God's presence and of each other's presence and see what the spirit of God might want to nudge us in.
few years back, a song came out that sought to capture the paradox of marriage. The sheer complexity of it. In a way, and hopefully this makes sense to you, the love and the unlove that we have in our marriages. The beauty and the pain. The covenant and commitment rising above the pressing issue of any given moment. So let's sit in this and see how God might nudge. Holy Spirit, I know there are people here who feel the ache of some of these words. And I know we all know people who are living out the ache of some of these words. And our prayer today is for ourselves and for those whose marriages are distant. Would you do some kind of work to bring people back on a path of inching toward oneness.